This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We are your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. This episode of Persuasion is sponsored in part by InterVarsity Press, publisher of the Liturgy of Politics by our friend Caitlin Schess. She was with us just a few episodes ago, and InterVarsity has two special offerings for grabbing a copy of Caitlin's book. There's a giveaway and there's a discount code. I'm going to post all those details for you in the show notes so you can grab them later, because now it is time for us to press into the next conversation for our new series. Our series is Forgotten Country. And if you've been listening along, you know that we're tackling a variety of ways faith and politics collide. And the aim here is to gain some clarity in how we think about and hold to our political perspectives. Now, as I mentioned, we spoke with Caitlin about reframing our approach to politics. And in the previous episode, we discussed the sort of nation we're trying to build with that very engagement. But this week, we're going to turn the conversation just a bit to some practical things. And when it comes to politics, Hannah, I needed to get practical real fast because I get weary of some of the things related to the political work, especially the squabbling that can happen amongst the people. Um, I don't know if that is something that you find frustrating, but for me, I find it hard working together because we actually have to work together and then there are humans and we all can get a little bit sticky sometimes. Yeah, I heard really good feedback about the episode we did with Caitlin and I help I think it helps some listeners reframe um, politics because they too were dealing with what you're describing, just that fatigue of the constant back and forth, the constant conflict, the constant um, taking sides. And so a couple folks said to me, oh, this is such a fresh approach to seeing politics for the common good, you know, kind of leaning into public policy and the process in order to pursue positive things, not just to try to gain power to fight with each other. But I also know that for some folks, it was okay, but how do we do that? I mean, that's a wonderful reframing. It's a wonderful and a lofty goal. And it it also feels completely unattainable, completely right, right. otherworldly and just impossible. I think with the um the the vision there of like, okay, we we want this this goal of human flourishing and we're we want to sow kingdom principles into the the society at large because we know that that will help all people to flourish and to thrive that all sounds good but then there's still the actual doing of the work and that's hard um i i feel like it's easier to 
to be up at the 30,000 foot view and say, yes, we want this. But then once you get in the on the ground in the dirt and you're working, it's a little bit harder to make those things practical. So some of the things that I think as we enter into this conversation today, I would love for us to sort out some of the real things that happen when you are working with people and and what happens when those ideals can collide or what happens when we find people that we like to talk to and we like to work with because there's some agreement there. Um, there are good things and bad things because we're working with people who have all kinds of ideas and we're not all going to align all the time. And I prefer to stay at that 30,000 feet level. I love the idea <laughs> of community and commonality and finding the common good and this kind of um, just this very inspirational vision that we would all live in harmony. Um, yes, and like the Coca-Cola like buy, commercial. Yeah, I'd like to buy the world of Coke. Um, but I also simultaneously hate and despise group projects. Like <laughs> You would rather work by yourself. I love the idea of people working together and I actually hate to work with other people. I, I, and I don't mean that in a way that I don't hate people, but I find the the process of working in group environments um, difficult sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think when we think about kind of pursuing the common good, all the things that you've expressed about working with people or working with different ideas, it, it moves from this very idealistic to a very pragmatic a process and mm -hmm. you're, it loses you're, its luster real quick. I it mean, does. And, <laughs> it and really so does. At, at one level, I completely understand the division and the disunity and the kind of tribalism and partisanship that we see in this process because it is very, very hard to actually pursue the common good. It's mm -hmm. very hard. It is. Mm hmm. When I think about some of the work that I've been involved in here in my own community, I I always get excited when I'm talking with people who share common goals with me or common ideals or, oh, we want this common end. And there's a, there's an energy that comes from that, like, oh, we're working together and we're all headed in the same direction. There's something very satisfying about that. And it's... It, to me, at times, has felt like, oh, I found my people. You know, I'm working with this group and we're all headed in a direction. We're actually making progress. That's exciting. But there's a flip side to that, kind of like a dark side to it, where when people get together and they are moving in the same direction, one of the unifying factors is that there's a common enemy. And so I think very often our common work can then be put into this frame of we are working against a common enemy. And then we start to assess what what's going on over there with that group of people where they found their people and they found their common work. And then we start assessing what kind of people they are and what kind of motives they might have for the work that they're engaging in. Yeah, I hear that. 100%. The idea that we build unity around the common enemy, that sometimes our work isn't fueled just by this positive vision um, for what we'd like to accomplish in the world, but it's fueled by uh, being safe from the other guy or the other tribe or the threat that's out there. And I, I've seen that 
just replicated a hundred times over within my own short lifetime of um, political work being based on the threat of the opposite party or the threat oh, yeah. of the opposite side. I mean, fear works. That's why mm-hmm. that's why people right. use it. But the problem with that, of course, is that at some level that can't get you to common good. It might get you um, to kind of unity or loyalty within your own tribe or your own group, um, but it won't actually create flourishing for the whole country or the whole um you know, community, whether you're you're working at a national level or even a very local level. Um, and I think even that idea rooted in the word politics comes from the root polis, which is the city, that you're not just seeking the welfare of your group. You have to have a category that is seeking the welfare of the political opponent or the political person who has a different idea about how to reach the common good. Well, that's challenging because most of us come to our opinions about what the common good is because we assume that our good, the thing that we've landed on, is the thing that's good for all. And so how do we sort that out? How do we um, make sure that we are pursuing what's good for everyone and not just what's good for ourselves? Is this a matter of perspective? Is this a matter of laying down pride? Like, how are we going to get at that? Well, I think some of it, at least in my own process, has been recognizing the trends and the movements around me that are going to funnel me a certain direction if I'm not careful. If if I'm not paying attention, the world is shaped a certain way, the, the culture we live in is shaped in a certain way, and it's going to just carry us along unless we actively interrogate it and then interrogate our own process within it. And I think for myself, one of the paradigms or the narratives that I've really had to push back on is this idea of the self as the frame of reference. Um, the, the self and the good of the self being the highest good. And I think that's just a feature of, um, you know, the modern West, primarily, we're, we're a highly individualistic culture where we're, um, we prioritize that kind of independence, that uh, personal liberty. And I don't think we should dismiss that. And I don't think that isn't um, a true thing, but it's not the whole story. And if the only frame of reference we have is individual good or the good of our group or the good of our tribe, that frame of reference is going to lead us to the conflict we see. It's going to lead us to seeing anyone else as a threat to our happiness or as a threat to our good. Um, It's going to position people within our own community as enemies. Um, and and I, so I think that that self frame of reference that is just really built into modern life um, has to be questioned before we can even begin to move toward common good. I really appreciate that insight, Hannah, because if we are if we are going to work toward common good, then that means we need to understand how the positions we hold affect all parties and what happens when what we're working toward is implemented, what will happen as 
that continues for other people, not just is this benefiting me, but if this policy, if this idea, whatever it is that we're trying to work on, if it gets implemented, will it actually produce less flourishing for somebody else? And is this really a, a policy or a practice that really just benefits me and helps me? And so therefore, I like it. <laughs> and so I, I feel like that's very helpful to um, to say that we can't even know the common good unless we're seeing how the work that we're doing is affecting everybody who is connected to that work. So I, I feel like that's really helpful. Um, and I like what you said there about how focusing in on self will then automatically see other people as potential threats. Um, I, I've seen that a lot with some of the things that I've been um, involved in here in our community. I've gone to events for different types of political engagement. And I always find it interesting that really, no matter which party someone might be affiliated with, they have the same fears and feeling of threat as the other side does. And really, you could just swap out the names of different opponents, and it's the same feeling. And so then I feel like, oh, here's our common ground. We all feel the same. We all feel threatened. We're all feeling like our way of life is going to end. And so if we could all come to that point where we realize we're all just fearful here, and we need to put that aside and start talking and understanding what is the common good? How, how can we have the best case scenario for flourishing for all? Well, and I think you're really right to hit on the idea of fear, because I hear that a lot, like fear-based politics or fear drives, you know, the, the kind of tribalism we we see. And I think that's absolutely accurate. Um, and I do think there is a call to rise above that fear, to seek the common good. But I also want to make the point that that fear is rooted in something, like it's a real fear. And you don't want to just dismiss the sense of um, you've made that up or you've conjured that up and it's why are you holding on to it? And I think one of the frame of references is this idea of scarcity, that that fear believes that there's not enough good to go around, that there's a limited number of resources, there's a limited number of freedom, a limited amount of freedom. And so I better make sure I get my freedom first <laughs> because it's going to be all used up and these things can't possibly exist simultaneously. And so it becomes this kind of zero-sum game where my flourishing can exist at the same time as your flourishing does. So the scarcity mentality. Um, and I think, especially for Christians, um, you know, if we're leaning into this and we operate from a scarcity mentality, we have no hope of escaping that fear. Like, there's just no way you can talk someone out of that fear or ask them to rise above it if they are still believing that um, there's only a certain amount of good that can go around. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. 
Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Oh boy, Hannah, that that comment about scarcity mentality, that really strikes a chord with me. Um, that sense that maybe we have to um, fight and protect and hold on to the pieces because there isn't enough for all, um, that seems to run completely against the God that we know where he abundantly gives good for all people. And I think that um, that framing of scarcity, um, sadly, I, I have seen that quite a bit in Christian rhetoric, um, because it especially over the last 20 some years, there has been this sense of us versus them, meaning Christians versus society, really, where they're isn't um, enough good for us. And we need to hang on to um, what we have as Christians in terms of our place and our good in society. And I think that what you're bringing up here is hitting on some threads that have been woven into um, the Christian subculture and in ways that we may not even be aware of. Right. And I think it's really important at this point to step back and say, this is a very normal way for human beings to operate. And so the fact that it shows up in Christian circles shouldn't surprise us because Christians are humans. They're human right. beings who, what? <laughs> who function the same way their neighbors do. Um, they, they are prone to scarcity mentality. They are prone to these fears. And so when I, when I say this uh, scarcity mentality, I don't mean that as a condemnation or a judgment. I'm saying that is the way we think as human beings. But for Christians who are trying to carry faith or hope or love for their neighbor into the conversation, if we are the ones who are going to testify to something greater than scarcity, we have to believe it ourselves. We have to be the ones to witness to this greater reality of God's abundance and God's care. And what's so beautiful about this kind of question of scarcity versus abundance and, and not seeing how everyone can be provided for, you see that theme throughout scripture all the time, even in something as simple as the feeding of the 5,000, where this is just not going to be enough. This small boy's lunch is not going to be enough. And yet, in the abundance of God, it becomes enough and it becomes more than enough. You see it in the Old Testament miracles of uh, the widow who had run out of food um, and she had fed the prophet first. And then she's like, well, I guess I'll just die now because I have no more food. And God provides abundantly. So she, every time she goes back, there's more and more and more for the common good, um, her good. And I think the, the category that we see repeated in scripture is um, really found in Jeremiah 29, 7, where um, the, the 
Israelites who had been exiled to Babylon are told to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Now, these were their enemies that had captured them and taken them back to Babylon. And they're told to seek the good of the common and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for it is in its welfare you will find your welfare. So the welfare of the common produces the welfare of the individual, even though it runs counter to our sense that our enemy's good could produce our good. And it wouldn't it wouldn't outside of our belief in God's providence and God's provision. And that's what we're testifying to. We're not necessarily testifying to our special interest group of right. Christian that's political issues. Right. Because I think it moves so quickly from common good like investing in society for the common good, for flourishing, for the kingdom to to grow and expand. It goes from that to, oh, but my particular policy or ideal, I need my my part to win. I need my party to win. I need my people to win. I need my stance to hold firm. And I think that it moves so quickly into that mentality of the scarcity, meaning there are winners and there are losers, like, and I don't want to be the loser. And I think that's another thing that comes into play here is that in our political stance, it also comes into, I want my side, my party, my people to keep on with what we have already achieved. And very often that means I cannot work with other people on the other side, <laughs> meaning I can't even concede that they would want good, the common good. Like we're the ones wanting the common good, not them. And so it's still that us versus them and that competing mentality. And I see it as um, so disintegrating to the common good mentality that you are proposing here. Mm -hmm. It is. And it's what marks modern politics well, I'm sure it's what marked all politics in the United States is it's not that we're I'm suggesting something that um, has been shown and proven to exist in this world. Like the state of human beings is to fall into this kind of partisanship. But but what our faith calls us to is this enough margin to risk engagement with the other side, to risk the belief that we could work with someone who has slightly different positioning or a slightly different um, vantage point than we do for the sake of the common good. Because what keeps us from doing that, quite frankly, is fear. It is the belief that I can't risk this kind of engagement. Um, even if they have a good idea, I can't do it because it's the other side's good idea. That's what's so frustrating to me is the assumption that no good could come out of people who are on the other side of the aisle or in a different party or the other end of the spectrum. It's it's completely discounting that they could have good in mind. And I think that um, that is directly opposed to what approach we're supposed to have as Christians who are who are 
hoping all things, believing all things, trusting all things, that we're not demonizing the other person from the get-go. We can actually say, oh, wow, they they actually are looking for the good of the person. They're coming at it from a completely different perspective, and that's fine. We can learn from that. But I think to assume their end goal is motivated by something terrible instead of something good, I feel like that is dehumanizing. It's assuming that um, the evil is there in that camp, but it certainly is not in ours. And so that um, that judgment, that sense of those people are doing those things for those terrible reasons, I think that it actually prevents us from investing in the common good because we're so blind to the the ways that we're infected by our party lines and our party politics. Right. And I, I like that you use that word dehumanizing because I think we tend to think of dehumanizing as judging a person as being devoid of any humane attributes, that they are the evil embodied, that they um, are corrupt to their core, and there's nothing even human about them. But another way that we dehumanize people is to assume that everything they do is valid. That, right, that right, because side, we are human. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. on our side, to dehumanize someone is to make them uncritiquable, um, that nothing they do could possibly be challenged or questioned or said, you know, that's not actually good. It's not common and it's not good. Um, so the, the way we kind of play in our tribes is like, if you're outside of my tribe, the way I dehumanize is to, to make you evil incarnate. But within my tribe, the way I dehumanize is to make you good incarnate. And so there's no way to question what's happening within your own party or your own group, because there must be this loyalty and this affirmation that this is um, goodness. And I think one of the fears that I hear quite a bit um, among the Christian subculture is that you there's a fear of working with the other side because you yourself will be judged as moving your ideals or or straying from the gospel or whatever it would be. And I think that that's another way that we don't help each other within the Christian realm when we are judging and assessing Christians for trying to work toward the common good with maybe people you wouldn't expect. And I think that we have very high stringent, unattainable standards for assessing whether we should be joining with someone on a particular task to move good forward. And I really think that we would do better to um, dig in and get involved, not just within our Christian circles where everything's approved, but get out into the world and amongst the people and actually do the things that are moving the good forward. That idea of this level of peer pressure that exists within the group that means that the individual cannot make decisions outside of the group. That it's not just loyalty to the party. It is, if you go do with anyone else, I'm going to question your loyalty, not 
to the party, but to goodness. And it's interesting because this is so rife that um, Nathan and I actually got in this little, it wasn't an argument, but it was a discussion about whether he should tell people who he voted for. So he feels very free where he's like, yeah, last election I voted for so-and-so and I'm not ashamed of it. It was my vote. And and I said, oh, you need to stop telling people that. And he's like, why? Why should I worry about that? And I said, because I know that you made this vote for all kinds of good reasons. I know why you did it. I know you have every right to share that with you. But you have to understand that the environment you say this into automatically judges you for that. And they don't give you the margin to explain why that was a reasonable choice. And so you're marked by simply saying, I voted for XYZ candidate. And people carry with that statement all these assumptions about where you land. And and you could try to explain, these are the reasons I, I worked through it. It was valid, blah, blah, blah. But that's not the way it works. That's not the way the environment functions. No, it's not, sadly. And I think that's why I tend to keep that quiet myself is because I I think that there are a million reasons why I would vote a certain way or why I would choose to help with a certain organization. And unless you are in my life and asking those questions and trying to understand, um, it I feel like it's just so easy to discount and dismiss and then write people off. And so I, I don't I don't like those conversations for that reason. And I think that's why a lot of people tend to think of political conversations as something to keep private is because it's just so risky in terms of being judged and relationship being altered. And the place I feel it the most, sadly, is within the church. Instead of having this safety with other believers that they're going to give me the benefit of the doubt and understand that I'm motivated by this larger hope for goodness, you know, I I live my life and my work directed toward this particular message of the hope of Jesus Christ, the, the beauty of the gospel, and that all can be undone with one comment about who I voted for, who I intend to vote for. And so I feel that tension so deeply within our Christian communities that we do not have the ability to say, I trust you because I know you are in Christ. I trust you to process this political decision because I know your heart, that something unites you to me that is bigger than this political moment. Hannah, that's really a good point, because do we have that sense that regardless of, let's say, specific votes or regardless of specific, um, let's say, issues that we're working through, do we have the sense that we're actually still working and still moving toward that common good in the work that we're doing? Or does it just boil down to these one-time decisions of these one-time votes. And I think there's more to it than just a vote, but it just becomes almost like a shorthand of, well, now I can just judge you quickly. Like, let me just put you in the box and you're over here. Um, But among us 
in the church, I think that our work toward the good is going to take on a lot of different um, ways and means, and it's going to look differently depending on how you're moving forward and moving through those decisions. So I think that's a real challenge to um, give people a bit of trust while still trying to understand them and to talk through these conversations a bit deeper to understand where they're coming from and what they're trying to accomplish. Right. And I think it, at the end of the day, comes down to what actually unites us. What is it that we are trusting in to form the common good or the common unity of the Christian faith. And if it has become a cultural unity, if it has become a unity based on voting a certain way or having certain lifestyle practices or lining up within um, a certain even ethnic group, as you know, Sam Perry talked about last week, then that's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is this unity built on Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. And that doesn't mean that politics aren't important, but it does mean that we are bound by something greater than our vote. And I also think of it as like we're not, our aim is not to build whatever party um, that we are part of or we affiliate with. Our aim is not to gain the approval for a particular politician. Like our aim should be the work and, and the kingdom. And yes, we're involved in politics because that's where the faith and, and society work collide, just like what Caitlin was talking about a couple conversations ago. So the main thing is the kingdom good and politics becomes the the place, the environment where these things can happen. And so I think to downplay a bit the affiliations and um, maybe the the different partners that we're working with for the good, I think that helps a bit because it puts the kingdom work back front and center. The main thing that we're working toward is to call people to the kingdom. Right. And I think that changes what success looks like for political engagement. Oh, sure. So it's no longer that success for Christians as a political voting block looks like getting certain policies passed or getting certain people in power. Success for us becomes maintaining our Christian unity and our Christian witness across the spectrum so that Christians could exist in a multitude of places, a multitude of political parties with different dispositions toward the best policy to move things forward. And the witness to the world is not our set of political wins, but the witness to the world is that something bigger than politics is in play. There is something uniting us that we could all exist in multiple places and yet come around our common um, savior and our one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And then that becomes the way that the watching world learns what true goodness is. And true goodness is Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Hannah, I feel like that's a good note to end on because it's like you've just preached. So here we go. Don't tell but, anybody. Yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> well, um, I feel 
more challenged. I, I feel like this has been such a rich, good conversation, and I I have a lot to process here. I hope all you listeners have enjoyed this episode of Persuasion as well. And if you've missed any of the other conversations in the series, all of those will be posted in the show notes so you can back up and catch up and be ready to press in for next week's conversation. And we do want to invite you to further conversation. Um, We do want to model what we're saying we want, which is engagement with disagreement, engagement with um, whatever this prompts for you. You can find us um, on Twitter at Persuasion CAPC. You can find us in the members forum of the Christ and Pop Culture members group um, on Facebook and push back. Tell us what challenges you or where we should be challenged, because really it's in that comfort with disagreement that we're able to work through um, and get to the common good. Um, As I mentioned, you can join us um, on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram at our website, persuasionpodcast.buzz. If you are not um, a member of the Members Forum, you can become a member for just $5 a month, access the conversations there, and support um, the kind of quality content that Christ and Pop Culture is producing to maybe just offer a way forward in these very difficult um, and partisan times. We want to say thanks again to InterVarsity Press for supporting this episode and doing the giveaway and discount code for Caitlin's book. Persuasion is produced by Jonathan Clausen. We are so grateful for his work. And Persuasion is part of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. You can give all the shows a listen at ChristandPopCulture.com, or you can search for them at the iTunes store. Thanks to you for listening to Persuasion. We so appreciate you being with us, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. Name.